This is Three Women and a Bottle of Wine. Three friends. Three former TV reporters. And one bottle of wine. Delving into whatever interests us. News, not news. What affects our lives? Because it's probably affecting yours, too. I'm Kim Inslee. I'm Lynn Melling. And I'm Julie Barkey. And now on with the pod. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Three Women and a Bottle of Wine. I'm Lynn Melling. I'm Kim Inslee. And I'm Julie Barkey. And we are here at the Hewing Hotel in Minneapolis enjoying some beverages with a live audience. Woo-hoo! I know. This is great. We're the Rooftop Lounge. Check it out if you haven't been down here. So because we're downtown, we decided to invite Bill Hudson from WCCO with us. And he's here with us this evening. Nice to see you. I didn't have far to come, did I? You didn't have far to come. <laughs> Since 1989, Bill Hudson has been tearing up the airwaves on WCCO. CCO TV, just amazing career. Yeah, and we are just happy as three former journalists. We wanted to talk with you about your passion for journalism and our passion. And you know, Kim, I, I know you guys have kind of a rivalry. You know, dating back we did, away. didn't we? <laughs> you guys were kicking our butts. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, let me just put it out there. I you love and Tim, Yeah, you and Tim just—we uh, could never catch you. Aww. We had fun. We yeah. did. Well, but we're lucky we caught you for this podcast, so yeah. thank you. Nice segue. <laughs> so, so you have survived more than three decades as a television reporter. Um, it takes a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of crazy news directors, mm-hmm. a lot of long hours. Absolutely. So how have you stuck with it so long? Because I love what I do. Uh, we were just talking about talking to people, interviewing people, and, and the joy that that brings. Uh, that's why we get into it. Uh, you, you have that natural curiosity where you want to talk with people, just like you're talking to a neighbor or somebody on the street. And I think it, there's this uh, curiosity to find out how things work, why things go wrong, why, thing, why people do the terrible things they do. I mean, that's just natural in a journalist. Um, you want to get to the bottom, the root of why something happens or or, or uh, find out more about uh, some intriguing subject or some wonderful place in the Northwoods. And that's what's kept me um, going for the past almost 40 years. It was, matter of fact, it was 40 years ago this month, honest to God, 40 years ago, March, that I interned at WCCO no. from St. Cloud State. And uh, I met my very first news director who was then a producer uh, of the five o'clock news, John Hoffland, and he hired me huh. in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and the rest is history. But it was 40 years ago that that path wow. started, and I have looked back. So it, it has been a fun career. And you were talking a lot about this drive and this hunger to interview people, but such a big part of it is also being able to convey that information in a very appealing way. So mm-hmm. let's go back into your mental file cabinet and tell us a story that you did that really sticks out. Well, there's so many of them. I mean. Uh, the, the one that really comes to mind uh, right away is uh, 1991, and, and sorry to go back so far, there hasn't been one since. <laughs> <laughs> we were all still, we yeah, were all alive, right. it's okay. 1991, <laughs> and it was the uh, 50th anniversary of Mount Rushmore, hmm. oh, and yeah. we got invited to, from the National Park Service to go out there. They close it down for a week, and I didn't know this. Uh, they close it down for a week so that they can climb up there and uh, in those uh, bosun chairs hang from the sides and patch cracks because this is all granite rock and it forms cracks uh, in the wintertime and they're afraid that George Washington's nose (laughs) is going to someday fall off because there's a large crack going through it 
and water gets in there and freezes, and then of course freeze-thaw, it breaks apart. So they go up there in the spring of the year, uh, about April, and they patch those cracks. And when they close the park down, of course, they bring people up there and, 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 and you can actually hike all the way up. And we got to stand on top of George and wow. Abe Lincoln. And got up close Teddy and personal. Roosevelt. Up <laughs> what close. a view. It was absolutely wonderful. And, and the thing that stands out most of all, not just standing up there as the wind's blowing and you're fearful of falling over the side, uh, but we got to meet an old man um, he was a retired state trooper who actually worked on carving the uh, heads back in the f uh, late 30s, early 40s. And, of course, it stopped. It was never completed because the war broke out in 1941, mm -hmm. and they stopped all work on, on the heads. But that's one of those stories that if you're not a journalist who gets that privilege that most people don't get, um, you'd never see that or experience that. That's, that's one of those stories that stands out. That's one of the best parts of the job, too, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you get into it because you're naturally curious, and then mm -hmm. you get to go behind the curtain and see things that no one really else will cool see. Really cool stuff. You've seen a huge amount of change in Minneapolis. WCCO, you know, venerable mm -hmm. TV station, sits right in the heart of the city. Um, what are some things that have struck you over your time in mm -hmm. the city of Minneapolis and how it's changed? Uh, the atmosphere is different in terms of how I think we look at uh, our neighbors, for one. I, I don't think, um, I don't know if it's, a, if it's a Minnesota thing or just a society in general, um, in terms of uh, our care for people who aren't like us. Um, I get the sense that, you know, they always say Minnesotans are so warm and welcoming, and, and we are. This is a wonderful place to live, and I, I was born and raised here, and I came back here for a reason. But I get the sense that there's so much uh, uh, division uh, in society in general that I, you even sense that in the, you know, here in in the Twin Cities, and I don't like that. Um, that's not how I was raised and brought up. Um, I, I, I wish we could be a little more accepting of others. You can disagree. We all have our disagreements, but you don't have to hate on somebody. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I, I sense that, and, and I do see that, you know, not every day, but occasionally out on stories. I don't like that. And so do you think that journalism today, do they play into that a little bit, or do they not? There's this perception, of course, of fake news and mm -hmm. divisiveness within mm -hmm. the news media. Do you think that it really exists? I think, well, yes, to a degree it does. I think it... it not to the extent that perhaps some would say it does, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, so let's take it back a little bit. I, when we say news media, uh, you know, are we including you know social media and, and all these other avenues? Um, because I think what happens is the general public confuse commercial journalism. You know, the New York Times, Washington Post, Star Tribune, CCO, CARE, whatever, radio stations. Um, and, and they mix, we get all mixed together, and I think that's what happened in the in the 2016 election too. I think there was so much influence, you know, coming in uh, through social media, that there were, you know, it, it's clear and and proof has shown that um, the stories were planted. There were, you know, there were there were fake stories, obviously, um, but but it wasn't 
it wasn't the New York Times doing it. It wasn't WCCO television that was doing it. Mm -hmm. Right, and that's so how what, do people know the difference? They how? don't. That's the problem. And, and that's, that's why we need to talk to people about be very suspicious of what you read or what you see online. Anybody can post pretty much whatever they want and, and make it look like it's legitimate. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not. And I think, you know, when you look at the commercial broadcast uh, venues out there, whether it be CBS or NBC or ABC or Fox News or CNBC, whatever, um, I think they have so much more at stake that they can't run the risk of being called out and, and caught in a falsehood. Mm -hmm. You know, the stakes are so high. But for somebody who's operating uh, a, an online, you know, news service, uh, it, it's not the same. It, it doesn't, uh, it, they, they don't run that same risk. Yeah. People need to be a lot more uh, questioning of where they're getting their information from. Would you say that is one of the biggest differences today in journalism compared to when you started 40 years ago? I'd love to know your perspective on that. Oh. You know, rewind 40 years. Oh boy. Did you ever think that you would see a climate like today with where we're at with journalism? You know, I never thought of it that way. I, I uh, truthfully, I got into journalism. My father was a printer and printed a newspaper and uh, um, incredible man. He uh, never went beyond high school, went into the war and and came out and went to work and started a family. He had three kids before he was 25. You know, it's just uh, one of those things. But the man was incredibly talented with words and spelling, and, and he could do a crossword puzzle in a matter of minutes. I mean, it, it just astounded me. He impressed upon me the, the need to be informed and to read and, and to uh, really uh, share stories. I think that, that that's what drew me into journalism. Mm -hmm. I was really involved in photography and the visual side of it, so I think rather than going to print, which I had, I had you know, some interest in, I was pulled into that television the visual world. storytelling. Because I love putting the pictures to the sound, to the mm -hmm. people, and, and uh, it was just uh, you know, a little more sexy or something. And of course, the whole Watergate era, 1974, 75, 73, 74, I should say. And, um, and, and so when I got started in journalism, you know, there were no uh, cell phones. There, we didn't have telephone. If you wanted to make a phone call, you stopped and found a payphone somewhere. We had two-way radios in the cars. We didn't have computers yet. It was all typewriters. Um, and uh, you had a little, uh, if you were lucky, you had a little portable cassette recorder that you could record and, uh, and listen to in the car to kind of pull your sound right, bites. Your story. Yeah. So it was a totally different world. But what has happened with technology, uh, with cell phones, obviously, smartphones, I should say, you know, you've got the world at your fingertips. You mm -hmm. can look anything up. You can find an address. You can call somebody. You can reach out to them, text them, whatever. Um, the instant uh kind of the way uh, information is is transferred now is is instantaneous and that's that's the biggest change yeah. I think 
that's changed our field you're completely. Lead, you're leading right into the question that I had, and that I, I think a lot of people don't understand what is on the plate of a reporter these days. Oh, boy. I mean, it used to be, yeah. if you were an investigative reporter, you might have days or weeks, weeks months, months to do a story. Months, right. Now you're expected to go out and do a couple of stories, write something for the web. You have to do all the social media with mm -hmm. it. You're shooting and editing your story probably uh, in all sized mm -hmm. markets. So are we losing the ability for um, journalists to, to tell a story, to do the research, to be as good as they want to be because they're just flying so darn hard to fill up the content? All of you are former journalists. You know the work that it takes to research a story if you want to do it right. You know, you just don't go out there and, and, and observe and write a few notes and put a story together. Um, you do a little bit of research before you even get out in the field. You know, you find out about a company that you're going to be reporting on. You find out about a person that um, you're going to go interview so that you can ask some intelligent questions. There, uh, you're absolutely right, Kim. Uh, the demands on a journalist now to put more content out once they get back are so great that you don't have the time to invest in that research. You don't have the time to think and observe when you're in the field. I feel really uh, strongly about the whole multimedia journalist, the, the one-person band uh, style of television news, and I think it's going to be uh, uh, the death of this industry. Mm -hmm. I really do, uh, because the, po the, the poor young souls who are being saddled with that are going out with a camera. They have nobody to, to watch their backs. Mm -hmm. They can't bounce any ideas off. They're driving to the scene of this story, whatever it might be, shooting a few pictures, asking a few questions, getting back in the car and driving back. There's no time to really soak in a, a, a scene, to, mm -hmm. to walk around while your photographer is asking or shooting the pictures mm -hmm. and you're asking questions of people who are kind of in the background. That's where you get the good stories from. So I think we're doing a, a, an injustice to journalism in general, storytelling, and the general public by forcing this style uh, of, of news gathering on, uh, on our young reporters. How important do you think it is, particularly in this election cycle, for people to be aware of what they're reading, watching, researching, and also, when does the onus fall on the news, news folks, the mm -hmm. reporters, the news editors, et cetera? That's a loaded question because I think it's, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to make any friends here in management. And I, 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 uh, I've been on the union side of things, so we've had our battles um, in the past. Um, but I think the industry is, uh, is changing in such a way that, um, this is a long convoluted answer, I'm, I'm sorry, but the industry has changed so much because the viewership in television news has fragmented. I'm not talking about print, but in television, it is fragmented to the point where they're desperate for an eyeball and they keep losing and, and cu uh, cord cutting keeps losing viewership. We were just talking before uh, we started here about uh, ratings and, and how mm -hmm. back uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, in Minneapolis, it would not be uncommon for a newscast, a 10 o'clock newscast, to get 200,000 mm -hmm. households. 200,000 households on a good night. Um, now we're lucky if we get half that. And, and morning shows and, and 5 and 6 o'clock, even less. So I think with 
lower viewership, there's less money and management has less operating budget and they can do less. We don't do big stories anymore. We don't travel like we used to. My God, I used to keep a bag pack <laughs> under my <laughs> desk with an overnight set of clothes and toothbrush and whatnot because you never knew uh, that, uh, that day when you came into work if you were going to be sent out uh, to northern Minnesota or to South Dakota or, God forbid, Kansas or wherever <laughs> or the story was home. happening. We were everywhere. Are there any trends that you're seeing or anything that you're seeing in journalism now that excites you? And I'll mm -hmm. start by saying, well, you mentioned Watergate. The reporting that I'm seeing now from the New York Times and mm -hmm. Washington Post and things like that, I remember sitting, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago and I was reading two stories and two, two big stories broke within minutes of each other mm -hmm. at each newspaper and I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. I mean, what are you seeing that gives you hope that journalism will survive in some way? There's, uh, in, uh, there's great reporting uh, going on. There are great reporters still uh, God bless them, still wanting to do what I had the opportunity to do for four decades. They still have that um, uh, bit of idealism. They still have that fire in the belly. They still want to tell a good story. Um, they may be doing it with a hand tied behind their back, but they're still doing it. And they still are driven by the very principles that all journalists should be driven by. Fairness, getting the facts out, telling a story correctly and with the proper tone, and, and trying to inform the public. That is our primary duty, to inform the public so that the public can make informed decisions, whether it be on an election or how their tax dollars are being spent or what's going on in their local school. Those are all the issues that we need to help um, uh, the public decide. Mm -hmm. So I, I, the work is still being done out there. There's still great reporting being done. Um, uh, not to, not to uh, toot her horn, but Jennifer Mayerly did some great reporting on, on the lead problem of, 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 uh, the, water water of the Water right. Gremlin Company. Uh, fantastic reporting. And if given the time, if given the proper time and the resources, um, you know, there's a, a lot of reporters in the Twin Cities that are capable of doing that kind of work, but they have to be supported by management. And it's so important, the fourth estate, you know, the journalism, journalism is known as the fourth mm -hmm. estate. Can you talk about why, it's a stupid question, but why is journalism so important for the function of our communities and our democracy? Well, uh, one, uh, look at the situation that's happening in St. Paul schools right now with the problems of, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, I'm not, uh, I, I have a son-in-law who's a school teacher who's in the public schools. I have a niece who is a special needs. And I know the demands that are being placed on our public schools because of uh, so many uh, children that don't have maybe a, a, love, a loving family or don't have the support at home for whatever reason their parents can't afford you know tutoring I don't know what it might be but uh, these these children get into the public school systems and we expect the public schools to fix all of society's ills and if they don't have the resources to do that if they don't have mental health counseling or counselors at those schools to help these children um, it can be disruptive in the classroom. Other children pay the price because a teacher is devoting too much time to that. 
that's one issue I think that um, is right here in our midst and that's why the St. Paul teachers are on the verge of uh, going on strike. Um, so it's issues like that. Um, tax dollars, how we spend our, our tax dollars. Do we spend, spend uh, an uh, undue amount on, uh, on roads and bridges or should we be spending more of that money on mass transit? I mean those are the issues that you know we have to think about and I think stories being done about uh, you know overspending by the legislature or by the city council or by the county board those are important mm -hmm. they right. impact people yeah absolutely so Bill we could talk to you all night about this but let's face it you've been coming into people's homes for 40 years now they probably want to know a little bit about Bill Hudson oh boy and what he's like <laughs> off camera yeah off air here you go. Here's All right. Your what what, what don't you know? About you what would your you Tinder account say? <laughs> yeah. You're into wood. You like to do. I've always been a woodworker. Right? I've always been a woodworker. I love woodworking. Um, the thing about television is, uh, you know, it's 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 uh, it's you, you do it, uh, put the story on the air, and it vanishes into thin air. And you you know you don't you go home at night and you think, okay, well I did a good story, but what do I have to show for yeah. it? I like to be able to show something tangible with my hands and and so or with my work so I, I've always been a woodworker I build furniture I build decks barns uh, you name it to fix things I, I just I've always been somebody who likes to get my stress out by doing something with my hands and whether it be turning a piece on a lathe or or building a piece of furniture built a five-string banjo uh, wow. uh, when oh, I, wow. was, like, yeah. I was into uh, bluegrass music. You know, I used to be <laughs> able to <laughs> uh, wow. quite well, but I put it down, and I haven't played it now for quite a while. Um, but I, I want to build a, a guitar next, so that will mm. be my next project. Maybe in retirement, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, if you weren't doing this, mm -hmm. what would you do? Uh, if I weren't uh, a broadcast yeah. uh, uh, news uh, journalist. Um, I think I probably would have gone into architecture. Uh, I love architecture and contracting and building. My grandfather was a contractor and uh, back in the back, I mean way long ago, back in the 30s and 40s. Um, and I, uh, I might have gotten some of that from him. I, I just like building things. I like, I like architecture. I like uh, looking at uh, how something is made, built, designed. You know, I appreciate uh, I, I especially appreciate the North Loop here and what they've done with some of these buildings and brought them back to life and, and reused them. I, I like that sort of thing. You know, if I could, maybe I'd get into something like that. Remodeling? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right, right, Bill. Well, we are going to take a quick break when we come back. The final flight. Three Women and a Bottle of Wine is supported by 515 Productions. 515 Productions is a video production business with base camps in Minneapolis and Des Moines, Iowa. Ian and his crew understand the art of creative storytelling, and they know how to make video look fantastic. Learn more at 515productions.com. Our logo was created by Aaliyah DeSaltz, a creativity guru offering art workshops to everyone from business executives to book clubs because we all have untapped creative potential just waiting to be unleashed. You can find her contact information on our website. You can stay up to date on our podcast by checking out our website, threewomenandabottleofwine.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where you'll find behind-the-scenes photos and, of course, much, much more. Be sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's time for the final flight. It's just 
just a quick round of questions to get to know our guests a little bit better. I'm, I'm going to blame this one on Lynn because this is always the hardest question. <laughs> <laughs> and you can answer any way you want. Or what, not. What, is, what is the most memorable story you ever did? You already told us about, about Mount Rushmore. Uh, the next one would be probably uh, Hurricane Andrew. I've never been so scared in my entire life. Uh, you were in it? In it, uh, in it. Uh, Brad Early and I, this is after it crossed Homestead, Florida, and then went back out to the Gulf, and then was making a beeline across the Gulf. They put us on a plane, flew us down to Mobile, Alabama, thought it was going to strike and make landfall there. It didn't, it kept going west. So we kept driving west along the Gulf, we went through Gulfport, Biloxi, um, ended up in New Orleans, from New Orleans went down to New Iberia, Louisiana, and that's where we wrote it out. Thank heavens there was a, uh, a, um, a group of Bell telephone workers that saw us on the street. We're a couple of guys from Minneapolis, Minnesota, never been in a hurricane before. They said, get off the street and get in here. They had a great big old granite building, one of those old Bell telephone buildings. We wrote it out that night, and... Uh, I'm not kidding you, though. I've never felt wind like that before. It was constant for about 12 hours. Got up in the morning, first light, saw about three feet of water on wow. the ground. And, you know, it's just one of those things. And, and I thank my lucky stars that everything was okay, but uh, that's a memorable story. Sounds very surreal. It was. <laughs> All right, so you mentioned earlier that you always kept an overnight bag mm -hmm. underneath your desk for when you had to leave. What was in that bag? Uh, well, a pair of socks, a pair of uh, blue jeans, a pair of tennis shoes, and uh, underwear, and, uh, you know, shaving cream, a razor, and a toothbrush. That was about it. No Maybe Rubik's a couple cube, of shots. no. No, oh. no Rubik's cubes, no deck of cards even. I mean, it was maybe a bottle of scotch. I don't know. There you go. <laughs> So final question. So people have a very romantic view of what it's like to be a TV reporter. They think it's very glamorous. Do you have a story that can dispel that myth that it's a, a glamorous job? I have two stories that can <laughs> dispel that myth. Um, I wouldn't be where I am today uh, were it not for my wife because she held, the, she held the things together when I was on the road, mm -hmm. when I was traveling a lot, when the kids were young. Uh, accent signage shooting. Uh, 19 or 2000, 2012? Uh, uh, I'm not sure. Bryn Mawr neighborhood. Something like that. Anyway, yeah, 2012. It would have been, uh, it was a Friday night. Uh, I got sent right to the scene, one of the first crews there. And uh, it was a Friday night. It was our 32nd wedding anniversary. We had plans to go out that night. So obviously uh, those plans got scuttled. That's uh, example number one. Julie forgave me for that, and we <laughs> obviously been together for eight years since. But um, uh, number two was Waco, Texas, uh, Branch Davidians. When the siege was uh, uh, the ATF, alcohol, ta uh, tobacco, firearms, uh, uh, had a siege on Branch Davidian, uh, David Koresh's compound. Four ATF agents were killed, and I think six of the Branch Davidians were killed. Again, got on a plane, Dave Cheney this time. Um, he and I flew down there and got to, the, got to the scene. CBS News was there. We started working out of their satellite truck. But uh, we didn't know how long the siege would go on. This was day two because it happened on a Sunday. We were sent down on Monday. Uh, we couldn't leave. We thought it might be over, so we ended up sleeping in the car on the side of the road uh -huh. at, at near where the roadblock was. 
you know, getting no sleep hardly, not having a shower, not having any food <laughs> or water or anything like that. So there you are. You're tied to the story. You can't do anything. You got to stay with the story. So it's not a glamorous industry. It is not <laughs> so glamorous. It's very gritty. There is no Uber very Eats dirty, then either. No, no Uber Eats. So it can be very, you know, not so glamorous. Well, you are a man who has brought so many wonderful stories to the Twin Cities in the state mm. of Minnesota. He thank is, you, Kim. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fun. I've really enjoyed it. I really have. Well, we're going to keep watching. Okay. Bill Hudson <laughs> from WCCO <laughs> News. And the cool thing about a podcast, Bill, you, you see it. We, we have all these great mocktails from the uh, Hewings Rooftop Lounge mm-hmm. and some wine. And you've got a beer now. You don't get to do that on the air, do you? Uh, not that management knows. <laughs> <laughs> well played, well played. Well, cheers. And there have been a few, right. Cheers. Thanks, Bill, so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. It's been, a, been fun for me. Thank you.